China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Tim Rulig, a research fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations and an associate research fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. His book, China's Foreign Policy Contradictions, Lessons from China's R2P, Hong Kong, and WTO Policy, was published in January by Oxford University Press. But today we'll be discussing his research paper, Chinese Influence Through Technical Standardization Power, which was recently published in the Journal of Contemporary China. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Could you first just tell us a bit about yourself? How did you come to be focusing on China at a German think tank? Yeah, that's a good question. I ask that myself sometimes as well. I got interested in China mostly actually through classical Chinese philosophy more than a decade ago, started reading Mencius, studied international relations. So I simply thought that maybe the Chinese have some solutions for the questions and the challenges that we are struggling with in international affairs, started to do trips to China, um, got more and more interested in it, moved really away from philosophy and ended up looking at China through the prism of technology, technological change, believing that this is extremely relevant for China's digital authoritarianism, for the future development of the state capitalist system in China, but also for projecting Chinese power abroad. And so after I finished my PhD, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to delve into that specific angle. So I started doing this a bit in Stockholm. It was uh, based before and then was recruited uh, here to Berlin in the second half of last year. So here I am. I never made sort of this conscious decision to become a China watcher, I guess. Um, but at some point, I simply realized, well, I have done this for 15 years, so probably I'm going to stick to it. And I was fine with it. So, so it was good. So today we're going to discuss this really interesting paper that you have out in the Journal of Contemporary China, which is looking at technical standards and China's growing influence in setting them. But first, I wonder if you could just answer a first level question, which is what the heck is a technical standard? Yeah, a technical standard is omnipresent. We're really dealing with it every day, but normally we don't really are aware of that. So that can be the size of a screw and the attached screwdriver. It can be the format of the paper that we're using in our printers. It can be a Wi-Fi that we connect our laptops and uh, cell phones, et cetera, et cetera. So it's technical specifications that essentially are there to connect different devices or different products. So um, if we think of the paper size, we need to have sort of a standard measure to, to use it in a printer or a copy machine, or et cetera, or Wi-Fi, we need to connect different devices. So standards, we call it interoperability. They really create the fact that we can use different technologies or different products in concert. So the paper example, obviously, this is at the low end of the complexity spectrum. But I know that if I in my basement start making a printer with A4 you know, size, that I'll be able to put that into the market because that's what the vast majority of paper size is. Can you talk a bit about how does a standard emerge 
for a new technology? What is the process like by which we come to that point where there is interoperability? And who makes the final stamp of approval to say that this is now a standard? Yeah, I think there's two different ways, basically. The one is what we call de facto standards. So they had simply um, market dominance, market share. So think of operating systems like uh, Windows or iOS. I mean, if you produce a software, of course, you can also produce it for another operating system. But if you want to gain a significant market share, you want to make sure that it works on a computer or an Apple. So that is simply a matter of market size, that it's good to use the technical standards set by uh, Apple and by Microsoft. So that's one way. That's de facto. The others are what we call uh, formal standards. And those formal standards are normally developed in standard developing organizations. These are organizations that mostly 99% uh, of, of the members are from industry. So it's a form of private rulemaking, of private self-regulation, if you like. And it's all voluntary. I mean, you are free to develop technology, of course, that does not comply with the technical standards. The matter is sort of what is your market for it? So technical standards do have enormous force, but they are uh, voluntary, at least on paper. Now, as you write in the paper and you've written elsewhere, these have the appearance of being non-political. The size of and pattern of a screw or more technical standards that you're talking about, which are voluntary in many ways driven by industry players, again, appears to be non-political, but there is an enormous implication for state power. So I wonder if you can bridge the gap between what appears to be this non-political process of interoperability and connect that to how that does potentially implicate state power and the distribution of power across states. Absolutely. There was a time when the political angle of technical standards, I think, was much more present, much more conscious. That was around uh, the late 19th, the early 20th century. But for the last few decades, we have indeed not really thought about technical standards as being political. But I think they really contribute to state power in direct and indirect ways. In the article that you introduced, that you kind of introduced in the beginning, I distinguish four dimensions. The first is an economic one. I mean, technical standards by design, by a sort of global consensus, are available to everyone. So technical standards, even if they consist of patent and technology, need to be made available to all competitors. If you file a patent as being standard essential, uh, so for example, if Microsoft believes that a certain patent would be used in a standard, it declares that this is standard essential, but that thereby it declares it is willing to give it out in exchange for licensing fees. And that's, I think, the, the economic side of, of the story. Technical standards consist more and more of patent and technology and the more they are, the more royalty fees need to be paid. Uh, and that can be actually quite important for the competitiveness of companies. And if these are technologically important companies, of course, that can also have impact for the general state, the general status of the economy. So, for example, Qualcomm makes around 20% of its revenue with licensing of patents. So that is, of course, a huge issue for a company like Qualcomm. And of course, the US will remain a strong power in world affairs without Qualcomm. But obviously, I think Qualcomm also contributes to China's technological power. 
The second angle is a legal one. Yes, technical standards are voluntary on paper, but they be can become actual benchmarks or international trade law. And around 80% of global trade in goods is affected by technical standards. So that's not a minor issue that may apply here and there, but it affects a, a large percentage, uh, really, of trade, international trade. And I think there's sort of a political or, or security angle to it, because technical standards create markets. So if you have a global standard, then, of course, global technologies can connect wherever they come from, from around the world. But consider you have a Chinese technical standard that does not comply and, and is completely inconsistent with Western standards, a US-led standard. And then, of course, the question is, are the geographical areas that either adopt the Chinese one or, or the US standard? And that can actually create sort of spheres of technological dependence. And from that can also follow, of course, that you may think twice whether you want to go against Chinese core interests if you fully depend in a critical technology on the, the supply and maintenance from Chinese suppliers. These are the only ones that can maintain your technology. And finally, I think the fourth dimension is a values dimension. Technology isn't value free. And technical standards normally spread either globally or at least in large parts of the world. And if you set a technical standard, you implicitly always make political choices. So for example, do you prioritize privacy or do you prioritize uh, the performance of a technology if that's in conflict? Then you take inherently ethical or political decision, even if that comes in the form of a technology. One example here, I think we had sort of Wi-Fi from the West and then there was a, uh, a Chinese rival. It's called VAPI and VAPI was in fact sort of better on performance but protected the privacy of users to a lesser extent than Wi-Fi did. So obviously, globally, we adopted the Wi-Fi standard, so that went our way. But I just consider maybe the Chinese would have come five years earlier with their standard, and we would have adopted that. I think we would consider the VAPI standard quite normally, would be inbuilt in all our technologies today. So we'd simply accept that as normal, and the value would have been set without us really questioning it anymore. Now, can you talk a bit about the view from China? I'm curious, when did China start to really pay attention to standard settings? And we've seen things like China Standards 2035, these sort of frameworks for, for pushing China out into the standards business. Before we get into the substance of your paper, I just wanted to ask if we could get a bit of a his historical overview of how and when China came to really take a, an interest or an understanding of the importance of standards? Uh, I think China goes back 10, 15 years. It's a, a reaction to several aspects. One, I think China's general economic transformation, the acknowledgement that the traditional economic model in China, export-oriented quite low labor costs would not be sustainable given the high urbanization rate, given sort of the demographic development in China. So this general acknowledgement that China needs to move up the global value chain, get more innovative. And I think China was quite conscious that innovation and technical standard setting is not the exact same thing, surely not, but that it is closely interlinked. So if you are able to set technical standards that will boost also your 
uh, ability to be innovative, but also it is a sign of your innovativeness. So I think that that was one aspect that uh, was decisive for China. A second interesting, I think, it was very closely watched that in the TTIP negotiations between the United States and the European Union, that technical standards played a huge role, that technical standards was something that the transatlantic partners were negotiating and bargaining uh, over for a long time. And I think that also made the Chinese quite curious, why the hack is that so important for the US and the EU, that that is such a crucial point. So it was also a bit watching the outside world, learning from us, uh, that that could be an, an important aspect. From that, I think China developed a very clear and good understanding of political potential that lies in technical uh, standard setting. And then we had first uh, the introduction of a new standardization law that took effect on the 1st of January 2018. We may be talking a bit about this later, mainly address the domestic uh, angle of standard setting in China. Uh, And then, as you just mentioned, China commissioned a research project uh, termed China Sense 2035, that ended actually in January 2020. In the West, we still talk about uh, the term. But in fact, based on those results from China Sense 2035, China then developed, and interesting, was jointly published, not just by the Chinese government, the central government, the state council, but also by the central committee of the Chinese Communist Party, an outline, which is essentially a strategizing document that very much highlights that this is a strategic issue that China sees it as being crucial for both domestic development in terms of sort of economic transformation, but also in projecting Chinese power abroad. So I think the strategic character of it uh, becomes very clear, not least uh, through this latest uh, strategizing process that is normally referred to as China since 2035. Now, just building on that a bit, can you give us a sense of the landscape for actors who are involved in standard setting in China and then internationally, sort of what does the ecosystem of actors look like on the state and the market side? So internationally, if I start there, I think it's primarily really private actors. We have a bit of differences also in the systems on both sides of the Atlantic. So in Europe, we have a bit of a more structured process, but it's still primarily private actors, private sector actors that develop those technical standards. In the US, it's even more, it falls even more in in the domain of uh, private actors, there's even less state guidance. This stands in sharp contrast to what we see in China. China has a state-centric system until 2018, until this standardization law took effect. All technical standards were developed under the umbrella of state ministries, either at national level or local governments. That has changed a bit. We have two tiers now, a state tier and a market tier. So the state tier involves companies in developing technical standards, but these are institutions that are run under uh, the the umbrella of uh, state agencies, local governments, uh, national ministries. And even in in the so-called market tier that is being strengthened, where private industry associations are supposed to develop technical standards without interference from from party state actors, uh, we do see a quite significant interference. Many of the uh, relevant associations uh, have very close contacts with the party state. There's reports about sort of informal guidance from party state. There are scholarships, uh, so financial incentives for specific standards. 
So there's different ways of informal interference from the party state, even in this market tier. And I think what is most uh, interesting as well is that when uh, we conducted a survey among European companies active in China in the second half of last year, that most companies actually found that state actors being the most relevant for the standardization work that they're involved in. So that's not just on paper, it's also the experience of Western companies operating in China. And even if you talk to Chinese company representatives, I mean, they absolutely agree with this uh, very strong presence, this very strong state-centric system that still exists in China. Now, can you talk a bit about in the paper, you you tried to measure uh, China's footprint in international technical standardization. Can you talk a bit about the first, just cover the methodology of that? How did you construct this metric to be able to assess China's influence? Yeah, that's more complex than one might think, because one may just think, well, we'll just look at votes or something. But but that's not how it works. In SDOs, in Senate Developing Organizations, they work by consensus normally. It's quite internationally accepted. I didn't have to create that matrix that there are several proxies that work quite well. It's just that normally in our discussion of China or the geopolitics of standardization, it's seldom that this kind of literature is being linked to sort of the more uh, traditional standardization literature that looks at leadership positions, participation in standard setting, standardization contributions, standard essential patterns, and of course, also a bit qualitatively a bit on sort of how relevant the actual contributions were. Again, it's also a very fragmented scene. So you have to pick uh, technologies, uh, you also have to pick institutions to make your way through. So, for example, in information communication te- technology, we have around 200 standard developing organizations globally at this point. So, of course, I didn't go through t- more than 200 organizations here, but I focused on a few important ones uh, like the International Standardization Organization or the International Electrotechnical Committee um, to sort of see and, and uh, found that. China's leadership positions, not just in terms of who's being the president or the, the secretary general, but also the technical level. Uh, technical standards are being developed in small technical committees and their sub-organs. So who is actually heading the secretariats or the chair positions or rapporteurs depends a bit on, on which organization with terminology is. So if the, this, these technical leadership positions. And what do you see is here... China has an increasing role there, but it's still well behind in, in, in those most important, most general standardization organizations behind uh, Western influence. In terms of participation, it's are you active, uh, an active member of those technical committees, but it's also how many representatives are you actually sending there? This may be a very complex setting. So if you just have two, three people, you may simply not be able to influence the process. If you have a large delegation that may be very helpful. The contributions, the same day you can actually just count contributions. But again, it's very complex. I mean, a 5G standard procedure that has thousands of standard contributions. So I focus in this paper on, on 5G as an example, but uh, you could replicate that with, with other technologies, of course. Uh, standard essential patterns particularly helpful if you want to measure sort of the economic dimension that I mentioned before. Otherwise, it's uh, not, I think, the most accurate figure to have uh, standardization influence. But then I also conducted quite a lot of interviews with both Chinese standard setters, so, so representatives in standard developing organizations, 
but also European and US colleagues to get a better understanding sort of how meaningful are those contributions? Are they, how are Chinese contributions being seen internationally? That was sort of also. And from all this, what I find is that China has a growing role. It's still well behind the West and there's really no domination. I mean, we sometimes you have those headlines, China dominating technical standard setting. That's really not the case, and I doubt any state can really dominate standard setting. It is ultimately a cooperative endeavor. It, these are private and voluntary specifications. So if the market wasn't pick them up, uh, it would be very difficult uh, for them to become effective. So you need some sort of consensus. You need some support from global markets. So it, it can't just be dominated by China. Let's imagine China has growing market dominance or power in a given technology. And it's able to sort of push a standard that maybe from a bottom-up perspective would not necessarily be the ideal standard, but because of China's market power, it's able to push that. So are there cases in which what you said just now does not necessarily obtain? In other words, ideally a market would prefer a different standard, but this is the one that's being pushed because of market dominance? Totally. You have cases of this in manifold. I mean, from China, but also not from China. One that is quite well known is the battle between Betamax that was developed by Sony in the 70s and VHS video format. And Betamax, I think by all standards, is technologically superior. So Sony was quite confident it could push it through. But actually, the alliance that was formed to support VHS video format was too strong. So in the end, uh, Sony had to give up. And of course, we see similar things. But we also have cases where uh, superior technology simply stands. I mean, so, so, they, so it can go really either way. For example, in, in the 3G uh, mobile phone standard, China actually also pushed for its own technical standard. It was even successful in establishing that next to uh, other international standards. But the Chinese standard was even only slowly picked up by, by Chinese operators themselves. Some did, but that was the pressure from, from the state as well to do so. And on 4G, uh, when it came to the, to the next generation of mobile technology, the Chinese leadership had understood that pushing for its own separate, distinct standard was not helpful at all. So there's both cases where we see success stories that uh, even inferior standards uh, would prevail. But we also have uh, uh, cases where there's plenty of state support, uh, plenty of money, plenty of pressure. And nonetheless, uh, it fails simply because the technical standard isn't good enough. So there are cases for both. It depends really on the specific market dynamic, a bit also on the market structure, I think. But yes, China could certainly and is pushing out its own technical standards in fields where it knows maybe we are inferior, but we may employ simply other means, financial means to push for our own technology and our own technical standards. I wonder if next you can talk about how China's efforts in technological standardization play into or support or piggyback on other initiatives that China has rolled out. For example, Belt and Road Initiative. Can you talk about how BRI facilitates or provides a corridor for China to expand its influence in, in technical standardization? 
It very much links to your previous question, uh, actually. I think technical standard setting for China is an integral part of the BRI. The Chinese are very well aware of the technological dependencies it can create if it succeeds in spreading and rolling out Chinese technical standards through BRI projects. So there are several aspects to mention here. The BRI has specifically dedicated action plans on technical standard setting. They were developed and uh, initially also issued by uh, the National Development and Reform Commission. So NDRC did do this. It also pushed for cooperation agreements. There's actually around 100 cooperation agreements with other states and regions that address specifically in the context of BRI uh, standardization cooperation. Well, I think what is the primary goal here is the adoption, mutual adoption of standards. So essentially that uh, developing countries would accept Chinese technical standards into their national standards registry. And for that, I think it is very important to see that once something is a national standard, of course, all the technology, all the products, all the infrastructure in the BRI case, very often infrastructure is being built upon those uh, standards. And I guess we're going to talk about one of the examples I give in the article as well in, in a minute. So that may become a bit bit clearer, but it creates dependencies. And if these are critical infrastructures, it's hard for states actually to go against the core interests of that uh, state that it fully relies on to maintain and further build out this critical infrastructure. To mention just one last aspect that relates to the BRI, there was a heavy discussion within China whether to even establish a, a BRI regional standards forum. That would have been sort of a new international standardization organization dominated by China to liaise with uh, BRI countries. And that was a great concern for the West. Interestingly, we don't see that this is part of um, the outline of the strategy that China has published uh, last October, uh, the one that is often referred to as China since 2035. To my knowledge, the debate isn't off the table. China is still considering doing this, and that would, I think, indeed institutionalize a parallel world of technical standards as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And then, of course, funding execution by Chinese companies and thereby the export of technical standards would create technological dependencies of a scale that uh, we are not seeing at the moment. So that would be a, a big deal, I think. Why don't we just explore that a bit further with a case study, so to speak, and talk about standard setting in the railway sector, yeah. which is something you talk about in the paper. Absolutely. That, that, that's what I have in mind. So, so the railway sector, I think, is uh, a particularly good example where we see those uh, mechanisms all, already happening. China has provided significant funding to other countries' rail projects, in, for example, Laos, in Djibouti, in Indonesia, and in other countries, provided loans, provided funding for it, upon the condition that those railway projects would be executed by Chinese companies, most of them are actually also state-owned firms. And those state-owned firms work based on Chinese standards, and in the railway sector, they are in the fortunate position that they are not very well-established international standards. But that implies that recipient countries, when they try to maintain, for example, a digital signaling system of a high-speed rail link that creates mobility that is really crucial for the economic development of those countries, they can't just turn to a U.S. supplier or a European supplier. 
for maintaining those signaling systems or if they want to further build out that uh, high-speed rail network and want to use, which makes absolute sense, the same digital signaling system, US suppliers, European suppliers can't just step in for decades to come. What they will always need to do and that on a weekly basis, they will always need to go back to this Chinese supplier, to this Chinese state-owned enterprise and tell them, please maintain our signaling system so our railways are still running. That, of course, brings you in a situation of dependency that maybe the recipient countries weren't entirely aware of when they signed it, when they thought, well, that's good funding for an infrastructure project. Yes, the Chinese companies may profit from it because uh, they build it now, but that the, the technical standard angle that is involved in it really uh, makes them dependent for decades to come. And I think that is sort of the crucial element. Unless they decide to replace the entire signaling system or um, to go completely different. But that's, of course, extremely costly. So if they go rational, economically rational, they will depend on China in the foreseeable future. This has been a really helpful conversation. And for me, because I knew basically the not even a Wikipedia page worth of knowledge on standards, your paper was was incredibly helpful. I wanted to ask if you could just summarize, but also think ahead a bit. Standards have been something which has largely existed outside of the purview of foreign policy analysts until quite recently. And that's mostly because, as you mentioned, this is primarily a market-driven phenomenon and one that was largely the result of technological nerds sitting together and coming to some sort of consensus. Now, this is very much wrapped up in this idea of interstate competition and a key part of thinking about how the U.S. and and China are jockeying for power in the global order and especially around the development of technology. Now that technological standards have been wrapped up in this broader discourse on great power competition, how do you think that's going to affect standard settings? And maybe it isn't. I I just wanted to get your sense of now that there's so much focus on this, now that national security policymakers are thinking about standards, how is that going to shape the way that standards evolve? Yeah, the risks are high that it changes dramatically. Let me say this. I think the power of technical standards to some extent stemmed from two characteristics. Technical standards were discrete and transformative. Discrete in the sense that it wasn't quite obvious how political they were. So political aspects wouldn't play much of a role. People would be very much focused on the technology and finding the best technological solution for a common problem. That type of thing is not completely gone. But of course, the more politicized technical standard setting is, the more important for the standard developing process is where that proposal came from. Came it from China, came from the US, from the EU, from a third country, whatsoever. So that is one that I think political aspects play a bigger role in sort of the assessment of proposals. And that changes the very nature and very character of standard setting. The second aspect, I think, is technical standards used to be transformative. And that, I think, is going to stay because once a technical standard is being set and gains market acceptance, it is quite costly to change. Just think of sort of Wi-Fi. If 
from one day to another, we all decided that we don't want to rely on Wi-Fi, but on a different technical standard. We would need to find new routers. We would need to build new computers, new laptops, new smartphones, whatever we connect to Wi-Fi, we would need to build new. So, so I think so. this lasting effect of technical standards, uh, I think that is going to stay on the discreteness, I think, on technical standards, that is going to shift. I think if I put myself into the perspective of policymakers, what is the real issue at this point is to find the right balance between two aspects in this trend of politicization. On the one hand, of course, we need to adapt to the politicization. We need to make sure we don't fall victim uh, to this development. China, as I explained before, has a very state-centric approach to it. Normally, China is also being represented by a state ministry in international center developing organizations. For us, it's private industry, private industry being organized in those organizations. So the link between strategic political goals and standard setting is much closer and much easier in China. And we, of course, from a political angle, need to adapt to an extent that we can respond to that and don't fall victim to it. On the other hand, the technical standard system, as it used to be, this very technology-driven, cooperative thing, has served us very well and has made both the US and the European Union world powers in standard setting. So if we get to the point where it's so politicized that we don't cooperate anymore, then, of course, the entire system is essentially rigged because then you don't find any compromise anymore. Markets shrink. uh, The value of innovation shrinks, of new technologies shrink. So that, of course, would be sort of uh, also a terrible outcome. So finding this right balance getting the right response to China's politicization on the one hand, but also being able to actually preserve this private-led system and don't let it over-politicize, if you like, that I think is quite tricky to do. And if you talk to private industry, I think many are very fearful that we are over-politicizing this. So it depends on whom you talk to. I think you need to send uh, different messages to, to policymakers. You shouldn't control everything to industry. You need to understand that we need to change something here, that a functioning system is not going to serve our political goals uh, in the foreseeable future. So both sides, I think, need to talk to, uh, to one another and find a viable way forward that balances those different interests. I think that is, that is the major risk and also sort of the major task that we need to, to complete. Yeah, thanks, Tim. That was a great point and very well said. And as you were explaining that, I was thinking it's one of many areas where balance is going to need to be found between recognizing some of the challenges that China presents, but also recognizing that an over-securitization has profound, profound costs. I mean, this is part of the whole broader integration versus decoupling debate that we're having and I worry that finding balance is not necessarily something we're very good at, usually lurches between two extremes of the pendulum. But nonetheless, I think you've given us just such a sophisticated analysis of both how China has come to be an active player and leveraged influence and some of the challenges that presents. But as you just did, it, I think, so eloquently in your benediction just now, there's a, a really important puzzle that needs to be thought through of protection, but also not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So, Tim, I want to thank you. First of all, just a reminder for everyone, the paper is Chinese Influence Through Technical Standardization Power. 
published by the Journal of Contemporary China. Another plug, if you enjoyed Tim's analysis here, please go find China's Foreign Policy Contradictions, which is really a, an excellent book with some very, very detailed thinking in specific areas to try to elucidate some broader insights about China's foreign policy. That is published here in the United States by Oxford University Press in January. Go buy it via the OUP website. Uh, that way, Tim makes seven cents for every book sold rather than 2.5 cents if you buy it on Amazon. Tim, thanks a lot. And I appreciate the conversation and look forward to your future research. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 